Many of you already know our guest speaker today, Dr. Alan Webb. Alan first became acquainted with Unitarian Universalism while attending graduate school in Oregon in the late 1980s. There, he just happened to cross paths with our previous minister, Jill McAllister, long before she ever came to Kalamazoo. It was in 1992 that Alan started attending People's Church, and since that time, he has taught in the Coming of Age program, worked alongside his wife, Cindy, through people's involvement with Martha's Table, and he has brought his children to participate in our RE and OWL programs. Nowadays, Alan can sometimes be found in the nursery with his nine-month-old daughter, Alexandra. Alan is a professor of English at Western Michigan University, where he instructs and performs research at the graduate and undergraduate levels. His areas of specialty are English education for those going into middle and high school teaching and post-colonial studies pertaining to literature from regions of former European colonization and particularly in Alan's case, Africa. You'll help me welcome Alan Webb to present for us today his talk titled Inequality in Us. And as long as time is permitting, we want to follow that with uh, questions and comments from our congregation. Dr. Alan Webb. Thank you, Dirk. Um, I'm honored to be asked to talk today. Uh, Of course, I've heard a lot of sermons, but I've never given one. So please be generous in your listening. Uh, um, In recent months, I've enjoyed hearing a bit about the faith journeys of some members of our congregation, uh, and and I've really enjoyed that. Uh, Thus, while I intend to draw attention to an important issue facing our country and our world, I hope you won't mind my coming to the topic by talking about some of my own religious and life experiences. I was raised in a socially and politically conservative family. Growing up in the Presbyterian Church was an important part of our lives. We attended every Sunday. My father served on the session and as a trustee, and my mother was on committees. I was a youth leader. I have a lot of respect for Presbyterians. A personal reason is the tremendous outpouring of support that church gave me and my younger siblings when our parents died, when we and they were far too young. Despite this immersion in church life, I never sensed a connection to God or or Jesus or even had any confidence that he existed. So though at 14 I agreed to be confirmed, I didn't feel right professing faith. I did it because I was expected to. At that time, in the late 1960s and early 70s, the Vietnam War was a major topic. In 1971, the year I was confirmed, the war was raging. Eventually, 60,000 Americans and 2 million Vietnamese would die in the conflict. Four years earlier, in 1967, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. had said that he felt he must break the silence And as a church leader, he stated publicly that, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is my own government. Yet the Presbyterian Church that I was a part of, despite frequent talk about love, brotherhood, and creating God's kingdom on earth, the Vietnam War was not a topic of public discussion. That was a disconnect. When I went away to college, I stepped away from the Presbyterian Church. Part of my maturing was letting go of the guilt I felt in doing so. As a student, 
I studied political science and economics, though my major ended up in English. Because of the Vietnam War and perhaps the timing of my generation, I developed a different social and political outlook than my parents. Yet even though I had confirmed liberal ideas, I tried to see all sides of arguments. In fact, I was reluctant to act on my beliefs, to join groups, even to sign petitions. I felt I didn't know enough to take sides or commit myself. Another disconnect. In my junior year, 1978, I took a class on economic development. Each student had to choose a different country to research. I picked Guatemala for the simple reason that it was a small country. I thought it would mean less work. <laughs> Nobody else makes decisions like that in school, do they? Uh, studying Guatemala turned out to be an education in itself. I learned about a country that was, and still is, one of the poorest in our hemisphere. Sixty percent of the people speak a Native American language in their communities, and the country, in some ways, is still reeling from the Spanish conquest. Guatemala is a major food exporter, yet more than half the children, and 80 percent of the indigenous children, are malnourished. It is a rural agricultural country, where 2 percent of the landowners own 65 percent of the arable land. 78 percent of the farms are confined to 10% of the land. And nearly half of the economically active rural population owns no land at all. A country that, in the 1940s and early 1950s, began to take steps toward land reform. But that modest effort was cut short by a military coup in 1954 sponsored by the CIA under Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, former attorney for the United Fruit Company now Chiquita. The coup installed a series of brutal military dictatorships. So now the topic of inequality and us and the theme of Guatemala enters into this sermon. Recently graduated from college, I attended a street fair in Portland, Oregon, where I lived. There was a booth disseminating information about Central America. I stopped and mentioned I didn't know a lot about Central America, but I did know something about Guatemala. I was invited to a meeting that night, which led to involvement in the Central American Solidarity Movement. We sought to support human rights, economic justice, democratic freedoms, and challenge U.S. interventions. This began my activist work, and in subsequent years, I've been involved in many issues and political campaigns. In the early 1980s, I also became a high school English teacher and a mountain climber. My summers were in part devoted to increasingly challenging climbs and expeditions. Climbing trips to Peru, Nepal, and Pakistan took me from urban centers to the hinterlands of poor countries. I walked through and slept in villages and sometimes homes of desperately poor people, lacking not only education and health care, uh, but enough to eat. I was also learning and growing as a teacher. Units on the Holocaust included my students talking with Auschwitz survivors. I taught literature from the countries I had visited, as well as from Africa, and from our then enemy, Russia. I saw the literature impact my students, develop not only their reading and writing skills, but also their awareness of the world, 
and their human understanding. The teaching I was doing led me to feel increasingly poorly prepared. I took leave from my high school classroom and entered full-time into an MA and PhD program in comparative literature with the explicit purpose of studying what I was then calling third-world literature, a field now usually called post-colonial. In one of my graduate classes, I read the recent testimonial of Rigoberta Menchu, a Native American woman from Guatemala. At 23 years old, she told the story of her family and her community, many of whom were killed in the 1980s, along with 200,000 other Native people in a desperate civil war. This war was basically a large-scale campaign of one-sided violence by the government against the impoverished civilian population and was directly supported by the United States. I taught Menchu's testimonial and met and worked with other teachers also engaged by her story. Several years later, in 1992, after she won the Nobel Peace Prize, I put together my first book, Teaching and Testimony, Rigoberta Menchu and the North American Classroom. I was also involved with a controversy over Menchu, which I can talk about. By this time, I was here in Kalamazoo, teaching aspiring and practicing secondary teachers in the English department and offering classes in African, African-American, and post-colonial literature. In recent years, my teaching has included a series of classes on literature from the Middle East, also addressing the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. These classes led to a book in 2012 teaching the literature of today's Middle East, one of nine books I have written or edited. Last week, I just finished teaching an an interdisciplinary class about food, literature, and inequality that included visits to loaves and fishes and coordination with the Kalamazoo Public Library food event series. So in some measure, in my teaching, publication, and work at the university, my involvement in the community and in the Unitarian Church, I am finding ways to close the disconnections I experienced as a young person. Of course, the Unitarian Universalist principles and purposes begin by affirming the inherent dignity and worth of every person and justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. So it's not okay with us that billions of people in our world, including millions in our country, live in poverty without adequate nutrition, health care, excuse me, or education, while others have abundance beyond the dreams of the Roman Emperor Nero. If you follow the news, you likely know that in our you like to know that inequality in our country and in the world has been dramatically increasing, especially over the last 20 years. Most Americans have seen their income stagnate as they have fallen behind peers in Europe and Canada, while at the top, incomes have been soaring. Thomas Piketty, a leading French economist and former MIT professor, has just published a book on inequality, Capital in the 21st Century, that is attracting a lot of attention. I, I tried to buy it, and Amazon is sold out, Barnes & Noble is sold out, and Barnes & Noble's supply uh, warehouse is sold out. So I, I read it on, on Kindle. Uh, <laughs> it's not my preferred way, but whatever. Okay. Um, the volume draws on a massive study of historical and contemporary data and has disturbing conclusions. Piketty argues that we are not living in a meritocracy where great wealth is earned. Instead, it is inherited or acquired from interest on capital. He proves that inequality is not the result of imperfect markets, 
but that efforts to make markets more free actually increases inequality. He shows that in a world of slower population and economic growth, the world we currently live in and are most likely to continue to live in, inequality will continue to rapidly increase. Yet surveys of Americans indicate that many of us are poorly informed about inequality in our country. Most people think that, that the country is far more equal than it actually is. During the Occupy movement, we did hear about the 1%. 1% of Americans have 40% of the country's wealth, and their income has tripled in the last 30 years. The average CEO now makes 380 times more than their average not their lowest paid, employee. Globally, the top one-hundredth of one percent owns fully 50% of the world's wealth, and the bottom 40% has less than 5%. I think we have, I think most of us have a natural aversion to inequality, but statistics like, statistics like these are hard to hold on to. Of course, we are aware of the of inequalities of income of the people we come in contact with. And there are undoubtedly inequalities of wealth and income amongst us here in People's Church, which is one reason why inequality is a hard topic. I know we are concerned about the challenges faced by the unemployed and by minimum wage and low-wage workers. In the lobby after recent church services, many of us have signed a petition to put a raise in minimums Michigan wage Minim, Michigan's minimum wage onto the ballot. That's important, since in current dollars, the minimum wage has actually been in decline since the 1960s. Teaching at WMU, I am aware that my students are putting in long hours at minimum wage jobs, often 30 to 40 hours per week, trying to pay for college. Still, they are going deeper and deeper into debt. When my students and I visited Loaves, Kalamazoo Loaves and Fishes in February, we learned that in 2013, the organization provided food to 130,000 food insecure people in the Kalamazoo area. This is important work, aided by many churches and charitable individuals and organizations, including regular donations from People's Church. So there are significant inequalities that mark our community and our everyday worlds. These inequalities concern us and should concern us. They are rightly topics that people's church people are working on, and perhaps we can work even more on. Today, I also want to talk about inequality that may not be as visible to us, the extreme inequality that has grown so rapidly in recent years. And it's not really the 1% that's the issue, but the 0.01% or the 0.001%. One example you may have heard, six members of the Walton family, the family that owns Walmart, have a combined family wealth greater than 42% of the country. That's to say a greater wealth than that of 133 million other Americans combined. And this number is conservative. It is based on 2010 data which significantly understates the inequality since the Walton family's wealth has grown in the last four years alone by an astonishing 62%. One thing Professor Peckett's book makes clear is that large fortunes grow much faster than smaller ones. One family's wealth 
equal to the accumulated wealth of 133 million other Americans. This undercuts the meritocratic and social justice values on which democracy depends. Indeed, how can democracy even function in such an unequal society? We know that elections in democracy revolve around money. When wealth distribution is so profoundly unequal, and when the Supreme Court has opened the floodgates for money in elections, money talks. The interests of the super wealthy are taken care of. The interests of the people, not so much. Many of us have heard of the Koch brothers, Charles and David, wealthy ultra-conservatives who make enormous political contributions. According to the Forbes list of world billionaires updated weekly, the Koch brothers are individually tied for fourth richest American. Combined, their personal wealth of $80 billion is far more than anyone else on earth. I bring up the Koch brothers since I want to illustrate the special dangers to our democracy and to our world from the increasing concentration of wealth. A week ago Friday, the New York Times reported that the Koch brothers have been spending millions and millions of dollars across the country to pass laws to increase the cost of solar energy. The Koch brothers are fossil fuel magnates. They are underwriting legislation, targeting politicians, and funding advertisements that any government efforts to support renewable energy are, and I quote, like Obamacare, another government mandate we can't afford. The New York Times editorial board concludes, that line might appeal to Tea Partiers, but it's deliberately misleading. This campaign is really about the profits of Coke carbon and the utilities, which to its organizers is much more important than clean air and the consequences of climate change. And climate change is all about inequality. The rich countries caused it, and the poor countries and the poor worldwide will suffer most from it. I want to continue to connect my, my sermon about inequality with a conversation about the environment we're, we've been having at People's Church. Sybil Shattuck talked with us about conserving plastic water bottles. Diane Melvin made an articulate pro-environment statement. Last week, Pam preached a powerful sermon about the preciousness of life on, on our globe, the pall of pollution circling the planet, and the dangers of global warming. Two years ago, I joined the Western Michigan University faculty working group on climate change. This group of faculty from across campus, the majority scientists, has greatly heightened my awareness of the enormous danger that climate change poses and the urgency of addressing it. The recently released report of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change stated that ambitious action must be taken in the next 10 years to avert disastrous and irreversible consequences. Massive inequality of wealth allows people like the self-interested Koch brothers and oil, coal, and gas companies to undermine the future of all of us, of the planet Earth, for the sake of their own short-term interest. What do we do? About climate change, yes, we need to transition away from plastic bottles for all our beverages, not just water. Yes, 
We need to eat more vegetables and less meat, as Pam pointed out last week. As Pam also alluded to, we need to be politically active. If you live in Michigan's 6th Congressional District, that's the whole southwest region of the state, including Kalamazoo and all points west and south, you are in position to have more impact on climate change than anyone else in America. You see, it turns out that our congressman, Fred Upton, who once had a reputation as a moderate, now, after obtaining one of the most powerful chairmanships in the House, that of the Energy and Commerce Committee, has become an extremist. The committee he chairs is critical to climate change legislation and treaties. Congressman Upton, Upton now denies that climate change has human causes, and he has acted decisively in support of coal and oil interests to stop regulation of greenhouse gases. In a long and careful editorial, the Los Angeles Times has declared Fred Upton the number one enemy of the planet Earth in the U.S. Congress. Of course, it is not surprising that the Koch brothers and the coal, oil, and gas companies have given him campaign contributions. It's only appropriate that I say, as many of you know, the person running against Mr. Upton is Paul Clements. And I wasn't expecting him to be here, but I think it's an act of friendship to me. He's shown up, and he's sitting right here. So, Paul, would you, and Aideen, would you raise your hands, please? <laughs> You know, this was not in my speech, but, but Paul deserves that applause because I know how incredibly hard he's been working to try to, and he, he entered this race because of the climate change issue, although there's a lot of other issues in the race too, of course. Um, but to complete my sentence, <laughs> uh, uh, the person running against Mr. Fred, Mr. Upton is Paul Clements, a WMU professor, one of the founders of the WMU Climate Change Working Group, and a longtime friend of mine. In fact, for much of the first year of Paul's campaign, I served as his volunteer campaign manager. Thankfully for Paul and for the future of the planet Earth, he now has a full-time professional in that role. <laughs> of course, I am not asking People's Church to officially endorse Paul Clements. I am saying that if, as a Unitarian, committed to respect for the interdependent web of, ex of all existence, of which we are a part, you might want to consider getting involved. And I'm sure you can talk to Paul after the, after the service, since he's here. Um, as I see it, the only hope for democracy in a society so profoundly unequal is a great deal of consciousness raising and significant direct political involvement. Money is powerful, but it is not the only power. And to address inequality, there are other things that we can do. Piketty Emphasize, uh, Professor Pickney, the guy who wrote that book, uh, emphasizes education as one way to counter inequality. The kind of work that our social action committee has taken, providing in-school tutoring to low-income students in Kalamazoo public schools, is action against inequality. Under Republican President Eisenhower, the marginal tax rate for the highest income Americans was 92%. Under Nixon and Ford, it dropped to 70%. Under Ronald Reagan, it dropped to 28%. While it is now 35%, the effective tax rate for the, the effective tax rate for the wealthiest Americans is far lower. As billionaire Leona Helmsley once said, "We don't pay taxes; only the little people pay taxes." According to Piketty, 
this reform of the tax code helped foster the dramatic increase of enormous fortunes we've seen in the last couple decades. So tax reform is important. Piketty argues for a global tax on wealth. It seems to me a good idea, if challenging to implement. When I was preparing last year to teach the class this spring on food, and food inequality, I thought to go, go to Guatemala. My daughter Ariana was two, and Cindy was pregnant with Alexandra. Nonetheless, Cindy encouraged me. As with all my encounters with things Guatemalan, the trip put issues of inequality in stark relief. I traveled by local bus and foot across the highland region near where Rigoberta Menchu grew up. I visited coffee fincas and stayed in the homes of Mom and Ishil-speaking families. I saw whole communities with children and adults stunted by malnutrition. Over and again, I heard stories of family members killed by the military in the 1980s. Mike, we're going to, oh, there's a picture. Okay. Here is a picture of Doroteo and his wife and children, indigenous mom people. They live in the home of his parents, which is behind them there, along with a large extended family. I stayed one night with them and shared their dinner and breakfast. They have no indoor plumbing. Doroteo tagged along with me the next day of my hike across their mountains. He is thinking to try to steal his way across Mexico and the U.S. border to work in the United States and send money home to his wife and children. Although his wife knows he can't find work in Guatemala, she doesn't want him to go. Here is the picture of a site of another encounter. The Volcán de Agua, the water volcano at 12,340 feet, one of Guatemala's highest peaks. When I saw it from below, I knew I had to ascend. Leaving early in the misty morning above a poor village, the steep trail went first for miles through vertiginous fields worked by hard hand labor. I passed donkeys, a couple of horses, and workers in tattered clothes bent over small plants. Then the landscape became more remote. On the descent, I was proud of myself. I thought, I'm getting older, but I made the summit in good time. I was by myself, the only person to climb the mountain that day, and certainly the only foreigner in the neighborhood. Late afternoon, and only 10 minutes to go before reaching the village, I was stopped by a young man with a large pistol and a bandana over his nose and mouth. In my head, I translated his Spanish. Dame su dinero, or voy a matarle. Give me your money, or I'm going to kill you. Inequality has a human face. Whether that face is eager, hardworking, and hospitable, like Doroteo and his family, or covered and menacing. Let us not forget that inequality is also tied to violence. Increasing inequality, increasing violence. The French Revolution began with riots over bread. Marie Antoinette is supposed to have said, let them eat cake. What kind of world do we live in? I ask myself, what kind of world do we want to live in?